Today, we're happy to welcome Stefan, managing partner at three early stage funds with over 250 million euros in assets under management in Germany. These funds back pre-seed and seed stage software businesses across Europe with over 250 entrepreneurial LPs and a productized platform approach to create tangible value add early on. With over 50 portfolio companies, notable cavalry investments include Forto, Plan Radar and Aleph Alpha. If you're listening in and love our show, drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the European VC Podcast. I am David, the LP Syndicate Lead, and as usual, joined by my dear co-founder, Andreas, the LP Hypeman. Let's start things off with how you got into venture. Care to share that story with us? My journey into venture, I guess, is a little bit of an unusual one, Um I grew up in the middle of nowhere, somewhere close to the Dutch border. Um, my family didn't have any entrepreneurial, like immediate entrepreneurial background. And I studied business economics, actually had some touch points uh, with tax and corporate law in a previous life as well. And somehow made it to Berlin about 15 years ago, um, joined a startup. Um, a year later, two years later, co-founded my own first company, an online marketplace selling high-quality mechanical watches. Um, switched sides a couple of years later and joined an early-stage investor based here in Berlin. Um, this is where I met one of my current co-founders at Cavalry as well. Um, and in 2015, we, with uh, six initial founding partners, stuck our heads together, thought about a new kind of fund that we could come up with at the first close of the first fund in 2016, running the second fund since 2019 and our life with fund three since last year. So now I'd love to hear a pivotal moment in your life and how it has shaped you as an investor. For me, it's, it's actually a little hard to come up with one pivotal moment that um, answers that question. For me, it have been rather a series of, I'd say, nudges. So I personally studied in the Netherlands for a while, did part-time work to, to finance that um, for a while also at one of the Dutch islands in the North Sea, uh, where I read quite a cheesy American business book, which to some extent resonated with me and actually pushed me towards entrepreneurship. Um, that is one. The second one is a lunch meeting I had when I was still with the other fund here in Berlin. Unexpectedly, my meeting brought a friend. Um, that friend had breakfast that same day with Marcus, uh, co-founder of Deliver Hero, currently kind of rethinking sustainable residential real estate with Gropios. And um, that friend said, hey, um, you should definitely have a talk with Marcus, which I did, and which then led us together with the other four to start Cavalry in 2015 together. And then when it comes to what is shaping us or me as an investor, I guess early stage venture in particular very much is an experience and pattern recognition game. 
and and we're learning something new every day. Certainly, I am. Um, and I believe while it's important to stay nimble and open to change your views, having seen things before is a major asset for any VC. Take a start. Could I tease out something out of you by using the statement, VC is a people's business and it's not scalable? To a certain extent, it's true, right? But at the same time, like we're like this is especially the angle that we're trying to 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 approach this from, right? Because we have a ton of LPs, and we have less than three hundred million assets under management, and we have a platform team composed of three to four people all the time, um, and and trying to yeah set up a structure that is as scalable as possible within, of course, the frame of, of being a venture capital is, is something that I, I personally believe sets us apart from some of the funds out, out there and that, that actually gives us an edge because we are much quicker and much more structured when it comes to introductions and a couple of other topics out there. And we're able to actually facilitate this even prior to handing out the term sheet, which is very tangible value add while everybody claims to be value add, right? In general, of course, I, I would agree with the statement you just made, but there are nuances to the answer to that, I guess. Stefan, to the attentive listener, they've heard a couple of interesting things already in this episode, as Cavalry having six co-founding partners, which is definitely not something we see that often. Uh, and to the listeners that will stay in, they'll hear more interesting stuff about also the sheer size of Cavalry's LP base, but also the networks around you guys. So I'd love to ask you a bit more about the origin of the name. You know, what, what does it come from and what does it mean for you guys developing as a firm? Um, of course, the name ha has a background or has a reason. Um, and, and that being all of us who co-founded Cavalry coming with a certain entrepreneurial background, uh, about half of us uh, also being involved in and some of those um, Berlin-based incubators and startup studio structures. So from day zero, we had, I guess, a fairly good understanding of on what impact you can have on very early stage startups if you connect them to the right people very early on. Therefore, as kind of part of our initial DNA, we said, okay, let's not try to find the, 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 just a handful of, of, of major big investors but try to find like-minded people like us, entrepreneurs turned angel investors with a similar entrepreneurial background, uh, and combine those all um, in a fund structure. And um, yeah. from a founder's perspective, deliver something or offer something that is just one line in your cap table, but which has kind of the whole cavalry, so to say, behind it, that you can call in for support if you think you need to. Did you manage to state true to that as much as you wanted as you moved from fund one, fund two, fund three. Uh, and obviously this, this question comes with kind of a sub-question attached, which is, you know, as, as fund sizes change and strategies evolve, you know, could, could, do you feel that you could stay true or did you have to do some kind of concessions over time to that kind of ethos that you had from day zero? Um, our initial fund was 22 million euros. We raised this from 80, about 80 private investors. Um, 
The second fund 2019 was 80 million. Our current fund, the, the 2022 one, is 160. Raising 160 million from private investors only <laughs> and kind of one to 300k tickets, that's not super viable, of course, right? Um, what we did in terms of staying true to that approach is that, as said, we had initially we had about 80 private investors. As of today, it's more than 250 across kind of our, our, our fund entities. Um, but from a GP's perspective, of course, some financial continuity on the LP base, some bigger, larger LPs, institutional money that invests with a large or with a longer time horizon and, and uh, from day one um, plans on, on re-upping in, in the next fund generation as well. That's, of course, super helpful, right? Therefore, our LP base right now is, is twofold. On the one hand side, we have the more institutional, more professional investors with the larger tickets. On the other hand side, we very actively nurture the private LP base that we have built so far as well, of course. You couldn't be <laughs> more aligned with what we do with the UBC. Uh, and that's, of course, also why we had, apart from you and I both being beautiful, bold men, we also had this, this, this to, uh, to really, really connect over when we met at Web Summit. And I'm very, very curious to hear because we're, of course, only just getting started doing this um, and we're trying to almost productize or industrialize the ability to, to manage a large group, large group of LPs that has value for, for the GP. But I'm curious to hear what is your operational setup to then manage this group? How do you think about getting them all involved? Because it's, it's mm -hmm. definitely more than a report here and then, right? Yeah, this is, you're totally right. And this is something that obviously has changed from Cavalry 1 up until today. Um, initially, we have been a fairly small team. The initial fund and the management fee behind this, of course, put some constraints on the, on the team size as well. Um, and initially, a lot of the platform work, so making introductions, connecting people with each other, has been um, with the investment team, which from today's point of view is not ideal because for the investment team, there's always something more urgent coming up than making an introduction. And, and therefore what, what we established quite early on, and, and I feel you'll have a hard time finding another fund out there with similar assets under management and with a similar operational and, and platform team structure as, as the one that we have, is that we've established a platform team always containing of three to four people um, and trying to kind of being software entrepreneurs ourselves, um, leverage software as much as possible, productizing the whole approach as much as possible. So we have standardized introduction and processes, uh, standardized feedback loop processes, tracking every single introduction we make from the team. But it's not like I, Stefan, have a couple of connections, such as with you or with some others. And I'm always the one making introductions to you, but we have this kind of more of a spider in the web and the as much as possible egoless um, um, approach to, to the whole VC game where we try to be as efficient as, and as impactful as possible um, without generating unnecessary overhead. And when you say, because I want to double down on the, when you say productize and, and using software, could you, could you, Go more detailed. Are you? Will you share with us in the audience exactly how you you, you do it? 
it, it, uh, a couple of things, of course, I, I can share, and it's it's not all rocket science at the end of the day, right? But just if you think about um, connecting people with each other and and tracking introductions, then tools like Airtable are super helpful. Tools like uh, Bridge can be super helpful to just add some level of efficiency to your introductions. And 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 there are more and more like this as well. And then eventually it comes down to. I can stress this enough, make sure that if you have something that is a priority for you as a fund, that you have some function or some role that, that you have hired um, for whom this is actually their priority one and not priority three or four, because otherwise it won't get done. It's just the case. Stefan, may I ask you, um, you know, the concept of productizing anything, and, and you know, we in IUBC have this, this challenge ourselves, is that you take it too far. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and there's always there's always the unique case. There's always that founder that need ha- needs help with something that you probably never have to help another founder about, right? And you never want to go too far to that extent as an early stage investor. So I'm asking out of my own personal curiosity slash learning, but also to other kind of aspiring and emerging GPs who might be thinking about, maybe I can, you know, I'm doing something super specific in the sector and I can actually productize everything and it's going to be great and whatever. And then they're kind of losing their sight off of the true needs of the market of the entrepreneurs that are on the ground. How, how, how do you think about it, right? How do you manage that so you know that you're not taking it too far and you're still being super relevant to your followers? The thing is, value add per se is is somewhat limited, anyways, right? I guess the 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 in general, the best case for us is we are saving our founders time, and and then kind of helping founders is in the rather in the kind of helping with nudges than helping in the ten percent impact kind of way, right? And um, so saving time, I guess, is is what, what stands above all. And then with, of course, the limited assets under management and not 200 people working for us, but 18 right now, um, half of those on the kind of operational support end, um, we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to offer? Like if, if you look at the HR functions, for instance, for us, it doesn't make any sense to hire recruiters that do the actual recruiting for those companies. But it makes a ton of sense to connect our founders with Ariana, who has been with Bubble, HelloFresh, Get Your Guide, Clue as well, uh, prior to joining us, and who speaks with all either HR departments or the, the founders when it's early on, on a regular basis from our portfolio. And, and she can very easily help with, with very easy questions like, okay, founders come with, based on uh, the role um, we, we have in mind, we feel we need to uh, engage within recruiting with a recruiting agency. And then you could say, yes, that's a good idea. Go ahead. You could also say, um, based on the role, we would recommend those three. And this is the kind of retainer commission realm that you should be working on. They, all the founders are capable of finding that out themselves if they do this for the first time, but it takes time, right? And, and this is the, the angle that we try to uh, approach this from. I'm curious to ask you because I see some who are activating their LP base and the angels around their fund doing that very much via events as well and, and by, by having monthly or these recurring events where they get them together around different things. It might be 
specialized themes or it might be uh, going for a deal flow, really. Um, how do you think about that stuff? And have you tried that yourself? And, and why have you then stopped it? The thing is, we, of course, I think events and meeting people in person is super important. Um, COVID came and once out of nothing, basically, no, no board meetings happen in person anymore. And I think having no board meeting in person isn't ideal. Having four board meetings per year in person where you fly across Europe isn't a good idea either. So I guess the middle ground, as always, is, is where the truth is. Therefore, I don't know, one board meeting in person is fantastic. Free presume is also fantastic attached to this. The same, I guess, applies to how you manage relationships per se and how you how you manage a platform like this. Um, we had a format like uh, saloon talks, so basically uh, inviting 20 to 40 people from our network, some IPs from some from the broader network for dinner events every couple of months prior to Corona. That um, kind of stopped a little with, 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 with COVID kicking in. Um, this is something that we have started again though. So of course for us, events is super important to, to keep the engagement level high. But at the same time, if you have a set three to four people on the, on the platform uh, team, you're actually able to not only engage with your IP base if you want something from them, right? But also you are able to listen to what actually their needs are or what their interests are and can cater to that to a certain extent. And as with everything, I think it's about alignment of interest. And if something is not just a one-way street, but it feels like beneficial for, for, for both parties, then something good usually happens. If not, not. May I ask Stefan, when did you start? So in the, in the firm's history, when did you start building out this platform team? Was it from day zero Was it with fund one? No, from day zero, we had the idea of leveraging our IP base which yeah. we didn't do very well because of all the issues mentioned before, right? We had a small yeah. team, the investment team had other priorities at some point. Then we started to raise the second fund with back then two full-time managing partners on, on the fund and, and some co capacity constraints connected to this. As of today, um, it's, it's, it's a well-oiled machine, I'd say, but we um, very structurally started to pulling this off with the start of the second fund in 2019. We have a question, Stefan, that goes along the, uh, <laughs> the terms and deal sweeteners that you apply for LPs. And I always find it interesting because when you get larger tickets, they, there's also certain expectations. And, and, but on the other hand, when you have small ticket investors, that bring a ton of value and commit time and, and, and their network and resources to you together with their, their money. Then how do you, how do you then manage this in terms of, are there larger LPs that get special information rights and special co-investment rights or, or do you say, no, no, we're, we're all a family. It needs to be the same for all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely. And since day one, the letter. So they are private IPs that are amazingly well-connected and, and everybody has a, has a fair claim of, of requesting better terms, right? Everybody has a reason. And the, the same with, as you said, your big anchor IPs. So what we did from day one is, um, of course, we have our kind of most favorite nation clauses in, in place. So 
we, we start out with the fundraise with kind of terms we have in mind um, and everybody gets the same economic terms. If then eventually a big anchor LP joins the, the, the round as well uh, and says, okay, the terms need to be different uh, for me to join, then those of course apply for, to everybody uh, involved. And this is, this is crucial also to John not kind of add a level of imbalance to your LP base as well, I guess. Yeah, but could I ask you, Stefan, because it's one thing that it so is attainable for everyone, meaning if you just put 5 million, then you can get it, <laughs> meaning that there's full transparency, that it's there. But, and then there's the other angle, which would say, no, no, so everyone will get the same and it, it's independent of how much do how much you put. How do you think about that? Is it the first or the latter? It's, it's the, the, the same is the same. Like if you invest 100K in Cavalry and we, we kind of let you invest 100K in Cavalry because we feel, hey, your network is good. It's, it's, it makes sense for us to, to formalize the relationship we have. Then you'll have the same economic terms as our 40 million euro anchor investor. That, that's cool. I like that ethos. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a feeling you'd go that way, but I wanted uh, I wanted us to really double double down on getting that explicitly stated because it's of course something that every also on record, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now we can hold you against it. So now I'd love you to give us a shout out to a Cohen Master Angel or LP for being absolutely awesome. And of course, share with us the story behind that awesomeness. Shout out, as I said, it's going to be a little hard for me to do to one person in specific, but I'd rather have a shout out to all our Angel LP base and the founders of our portfolio companies who actually more and more join our funds as LPs as well. Um, and those are not just valuable to us in terms of kind of sparring and input that they give us when we approach them as part of a due diligence we do. But actually those people also source close to a quarter of all new investments we do. Um, and of course, as you said, maybe naming a few could be interesting here. Um, I, I'm going to go forward and do this. Uh, one who has been sharing quite a lot with us in the past has been uh, Mike, uh, co-founder of, of Doodle, now doing Übermorgen Ventures. Um, fantastic um, and guy and sharing quite a lot of interesting investments with us. A couple of others to name here are uh, Gero uh, from Signavio, has been acquired by SAP a while back, um, or portfolio founders of ours like Anna Alex, who did Planetly, sold this to OneTrust uh, a year ago. The Domagoy of Planradar bought part from, from Noctex. Um, but this is just naming a few. There are so many others as well. And uh, yeah, as you know, we have more than 250 LPs. I don't want to start naming all now because then we need a little more time here. I would love you to tell us your three core learnings in your life or the past 10 years. First is team beats idea. The second is conviction over hype. And the third is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. I would love to jump into then conviction over hype because we've definitely been in a period where <laughs> hype seemed to be the, what was running the, the game and not conviction. So could you just take yeah. us through your reflections over the last two years and also mm -hmm. 
try and be as honest as you can with us how you've developed your, your own, you know, your own thesis here around conviction versus hype. And of course, um, if you look at our portfolio, you see that we are not invested in any of those FBA aggregator plays or those Thrasio clones or others. We're not big in quick commerce. We also never invested in scooter companies. Um, so just named a couple of companies that, okay, you kind of gave me the segue earlier, right? But named a couple <laughs> of companies that, that have been hyped to a certain extent that um, have gotten valuations um, for the founders, but also, of course, for the funds involved early on. Um, and and that, that drove value in their books that might not in all of the cases have been justified. And um, we, of course, had internal discussions as well during that time, because on paper, at least, we felt that a couple of other funds out there where we had the very subjective feeling that weren't necessarily doing a better job than us, they suddenly looked quite good. Luckily for us, I'd say we kind of stuck with what we did from day one and not um, changed our, our strategy in, in investing and trying to follow any hype, um, which doesn't necessarily make us much smarter than others, right? But it's, um, I think for us, it has been important from day one to very consciously force ourselves to invest out of conviction, not only in the first round, but also in follow-on rounds and, and try at least not to be driven by market sentiment and, and kind of formal too much. Um, which, which means per default, we, we try to be the lead both in pre-seed rounds and in, and in seed rounds. And this whole um, yeah, approach to every, every new investment, to be honest, also leads us to a certain extent to feeling more comfortable than maybe others in a situation like, like the one that we've seen since the last 18 months, maybe, where bridge rounds are a little more common than they have been before to actually still stick with, okay, we stick with the companies where we actually believe in. We are fine with the kind of conviction role, even if it's in a bridge round, but this can be in the long run, quite an interesting double down from our end as well, right? But it's, it, it, it is, everything is a trade-off, right? And this regard has been good for us, but, but let's see where, where we'll end up eventually. I'm actually curious to pursue it a little bit more because it's, it's one thing to say conviction over hype and that is what is leading you. But what do you do when you have conviction about a hyped deal? <laughs> Meaning that, that you're then looking at, at something you really want to do, but it's also incredibly expensive. The thing is, we invest, like we've done a little more than 50 investments so far. All of those, like every single one, we initially invested either in the pre-seed or in the seed stage. So a little bit too expensive usually isn't the case, to be honest. And if we really believe in something, and even if it's an expensive seed round, we'll, we'll do it. Um, because again, it is conviction is, is we rank this higher than, than, than anything else. Um, and we did this with the first fund, to be honest. We lost not a, not a lot, but we we kind of passed on a couple of investment opportunities due to pricing. We probably wouldn't have been doing at least the same decision on all of those again. Then there's the flip side of this, which is, as you said, you internally were seeing, there are some of the other funds that we think we're doing an as good job of <laughs> as in, in, in 
they're they're looking pretty good these days and we're not how did you manage that period with your lp base to be honest we didn't have a lot of discussion with the lp base it's not like we're doing poorly right like our fund one is uh, like this is the 2016 vintage the one where it's most realistic to 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 see where this is where this is actually going this is a fantastic fund the thing is just there have been others that looked even a little bit more fantastic and it felt <laughs> odd that this was the case so we didn't have any external discussions to be honest but rather some internal is there anything we should change and we luckily said no i like that um, i would then want us to go into the if it's too good to be true it probably is i'd love to hear why you're saying that because it's it's quite a platitude but i think that there's a special reason why you're picking this one i, I think it's it's driving into the same direction as we just discussed right so the short answer is um 100x or in cases even much more than those ar multiples sound fantastic <laughs> But they're, they're not very true. Um, and and it's, 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 it's usually not us or other early stage funds that, that set those, right? But it's rather funds following that or has been funds following that. I'm very skeptical of if this is ever going to, to, to come back to, to, to a place where, where people will invest at that rate again. Uh, to be honest, I hope not. Um, because the, the risk, especially for, for seed investors like ours, is so big because people yeah. companies raise so much money and you have so much leak perhaps hanging above your, uh, your heads and, and you're kind of the last one getting money and then the next downward is going to kill the early investors and the founders. So, yeah, that's the short or the fairly short answer. I, I love to ask you, Stefan, and obviously you haven't had those discussions with your own LPs in, rep, in relation to you. But we're, we are at a time now where I think that there's many LPs that did their first VC investments over the last two or three years and are now looking at the sector and saying, Stefan, I'm never coming back. <laughs> What's up with this private market and startups and shit? Um, I'm curious to hear if you've had those conversation and uh, conversations and what you've said to people. Yeah, the, of course we've heard that before, but it's it's like it's very hard to convince somebody who has kind of been burned with their first or second approach. Um, that's just the case. Um, this is the reason why people shouldn't do angel investing and and only invest in two or three companies. But if they do this. They should kind of set aside some time for that to do it actually and do it properly and invest in, I don't know, at least 15 companies over a certain period of time so that not one company can hurt you that badly because you have this kind of portfolio approach. But then again, if, if you look at the time right now and if you just look at what has happened uh, on, on artificial or generative artificial intelligence over the last couple of weeks alone, um, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to not invest in early stage funds these days because they, they are going to be the ones, the funds that are able to allocate money in the market right now are going to be the funds that are going to capture a, a quite a vast amount of, of, of value in this, in this first kind of AI wave that we're seeing right now, if you want to call it the first wave, but, but it's an actual wave, I guess, that we're going to see right now. 
Yeah, and you're actually mentioning something there that I'd really been hoping that we would get into. Um, because obviously generative AI and LLMs and everything in this space is incredibly interesting and there's so much happening right now. I think many would say that we've never experienced a time like that. How do you think about Stefan? Uh, and I know it's not related to the questions that we've just gone through, but I'm, I'm too curious to, to hear how you're thinking. Yeah. How much time do you have? Uh, 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, like for us, this, this is like, this is very much within the core of what we're doing. Like we, we are software investors from day one. And, and what we're talking about here is, is software and something that is quite impactful, of course, even though it's still very much a uh, look into the glass bowl to where this is all headed. But um, I heard somebody else give kind of a, a possible frame in another podcast a couple of weeks ago of, of what the impact could be. And, and he mentioned the kind of base case being the iPhone moment. His kind of a little bit more impactful case would be um, going from kind of a calculus to computers. And then the kind of a little bit more extreme on the more extreme end, he said, okay, we as humans, we know how to build nuclear weapons. And with this technology, we enable everybody to do this at their home. Which is, if you look at just what is possible with, with, with agents, um, like with GPT-based um, uh, agents these days already, I don't know. I personally, I'm, I'm very much torn between excitement um, and anxiety. This is basically how my day goes since a couple of weeks every day, and it's quite stressful to be honest. Yeah, and and, and if we bring it to the um, portfolio level, uh, because I can only imagine that you will have done investments a year or two ago that you can now see they are already at a major you know, risk of being disrupted by startups that are more naturally born with AI. Um, so I'm curious to hear how you've been thinking about that and not necessarily your established portfolio, but just this space in general. Not to go into too much detail on this, but I guess this applies to a lot of software investors across the board. I feel like a lot of people are looking, of course, at their portfolio, especially at the value drivers, not so much at the companies they invested in a year ago or two but at the actual value drivers and very much think about what are potential implications of generative AI on those. Um, we do the same. Um, and, and I can tell you that for now, I still get a good night's sleep, but developments are just <laughs> so hard to grasp these days. Let's talk again in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, right? So of, of course we go through this exercise as well as everybody else as well should. And I, I feel like a couple of investors, us included, of course, question their own investment thesis per se when it comes to, to certain directions. And I think this is necessary and makes sense as well, right? But it, it's hard to give a very definitive answer on, on this. Yeah, absolutely. The jury is still out. Um, how about for you, because it's one thing with the startups and their business models and competency sets, but also you are not as such a an AI firm, you're not all, you know, born, born AI guys. How are you thinking about that as a VC firm? 
do, do you think that there's a competency set that you now have to recognize that we need to hire for or develop? The thing is, which, which GP or which VC is in AI firm? You know what I mean? The, the question, while it's fair, we are also not a logistics firm and we've invested in photo. We're also not a real estate firm and have invested in plan radar, right? I think for us, it's important that we're able to wrap our heads around it, which doesn't necessarily mean understanding how natural language models and certain approaches to natural language models, that language models work up until the, the very technical level. But we need to be able to wrap our heads around it and we need to have people um, that we trust. And we have done quite a lot of deep tech and AI-heavy investments in the past. We investors in, in Aleph Alpha and a couple of other companies as well, right? It's important that you have a couple of people in your close network that you're able to reach out to when it comes to the technical due diligence of topics. But I think we are very well equipped of, of, being, of being investors in this space. And now, the quick And now, it's time for the quickfire round, where we ask you three quick answer questions. If you were stranded on a desert island, what book, music, album, and luxury item would you bring? Yeah, G given I'm stranded on an island, and given I'm not a fan of rereading books, I'd say I'd go with something about raft building. And on the, on the album side, I'd go with anything from Wolf Mother to keep my energy level up. And as, as I'm very, very white and getting red very quickly um, and don't have a lot of hair to cover my head, I'd go with sunscreen on the... Very functional head. luxury head. <laughs> I love it. What advice would you give your 10-year younger self? Yeah, think about the difference between urgent and important. Um, because, and, and this is rather to the 15-year-old or 15-year younger me than the 10-year younger me, but, but still it would have some impact on the 10-year younger me as well. Because it's, it's quite a lot of stress that you can avoid by really internalizing that difference. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising themselves? I guess the cynical answer is uh, ask yourself whether you really want to go out in the current market. Um, but, but if you are, um, I'd recommend talk to people who did this already. So did the kind of GP fundraising, did this maybe also in the current market and go into this with your eyes open and realistic expectations when it comes to denominator effect and a couple of other topics. And then be very, very clear about your positioning and your value proposition because it's just a different market out there right now compared to 2020, 2021. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? A given venture uh, has, at least early stage venture, has 10-year feedback cycles. And when I personally went into this, I was not expecting kind of aligning mid or long-term goals or kind of revenue return on investment targets for the funds and short-term success stories in some instances as well, and to be as much of a balancing act as it sometimes is. All right, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode of the European VC Podcast, drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. I'm Andreas, the hype man, joined by my dear co-host, David, the LP syndicate lead. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today and can't wait to see you all out there. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. Values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting. Acting.